The sermon series that we are in right now is focusing on the art of reconciliation. We've talked about the fact that it is God's will for our relationships and our communities to be put back together and that He calls on us to be agents of that. And so we've been talking about the way Scripture teaches us, specifically the way Paul's writings teach us how to put the world back together, how to put our relationships back together, marriages, families, workplaces, friendships, communities. How do we do this? And it's not by giving us a step-by-step, one-size-fits-all solution, but it's by giving us principles that when we apply them, they create godly reconciliation. And the first one we talked about is self-control. The basic idea is you have to be able to control your actions. You have to be able to do the thing that needs to be done for the kingdom as opposed to just doing whatever feels good in the moment. Because if you can't if you can't do what's right, you're not going to be able to build real reconciliation. In fact, it's usually following our impulses that gets us into the conflict that needs to be resolved. Last week, we talked about the next step, and we tied each one of these with a church that Paul writes to. So last week, we looked at Corinthians and how Paul tells them that they need to practice godly love, and that in the Bible, love means making a commitment to look out for another person's good over your own desires. And you can see why self-control is essential to that kind of love. Because love is choosing the other person's good over your own desires, which means you've got to be able to control your desires, right? You've got to be able to control your actions. And there's a way in which you could say that everything else we're going to talk about in this series is really just working out uh, last week's sermon. That really everything else is a matter of learning how to love people the way God does. But today, we're going to look at one of those ways that, the, that Paul teaches us to work out love, godly love. And I would argue it's a way that we don't talk about very much in the church, especially in, in Protestantism, that there are people who would say that what I'm about to tell you is not very Christian. None of it's particularly new, so you've heard it from me before. But they would say that this is actually not a good way to handle what's in front of us. But I will tell you, since I, I, the last time I, I worked through this sermon before today, I've come across some statistics that are troubling to me and should be troubling to all of us. Uh, The past 12 months, the COVID epidemic has created a crisis in the church that will define my lifetime. And the crisis that it is creating is probably not the one that a lot of people think of, because a lot of people think it's the crisis is, you know, the church is being told when and how they can worship and being shut down and all these things. That's not actually the crisis. The church bounces back from that pretty easily. The crisis is this. If you've been to a a presentation by a Bible college or a seminary, they will probably tell you that we are facing a leadership problem in the church because we are not graduating enough candidates for pastorates to fill all the jobs that are out there, all the pulpits that are out there. The largest current generation of pastors is retiring and the smallest generation of pastors is being graduated. What's happened in the last 12 months, surveys tell us that one in four pastors that are pastoring through the epidemic are now considering quitting. One in four. 25% of pastors who are pastoring through the epidemic are considering quitting. And it's not because of the regulations. It's because of the way their congregations are handling uh, controversy. It's because of how hard it is to pastor a church when everybody fights over everything that happens in the news and, and all these different things about how, how we shut down and how we come back and what we require and what we don't require and dealing with an, an election and all the contentious things that have happened over the last 12 months. One in four pastors are considering calling it quits because of how hard that is to pastor churches in America that are fighting over everything that happens. 
I'm not one of those uh, 25%, so don't worry about me. But the main reason I recognize is not because I'm better, better equipped or better than any other pastor. It's because I have been blessed with a congregation that has not put me in that position. I, as, as hard as the last 12 months have been, um, they could have been a lot harder, and it's really thanks to the congregation. But I think it's important for us to recognize that, that Christians are called to handle disagreement differently than we have been. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. The word that we're looking at, is, or the practice is, I'm calling acceptance, because it's the best word I could, I could use to translate what Paul is telling the Romans to do. And we're going to, So we're going to start by looking at what's going on in the church in Rome, what controversy are they dealing with? How does acceptance, how does Paul use acceptance to resolve that issue? And then finally, how does acceptance being part of reconciliation teach us to seek godly reconciliation, not worldly reconciliation? So let's talk about what's going on in, in the early church in, and then specifically in Rome so we can understand this context. First thing you need to understand, that the biggest thing you need to know in order to understand the letters in the New Testament, there's something going on in those letters in that time period in the church that is not really going on. It goes on in different ways, but it's a totally different issue that is splitting the church. And that is that early churches, they included in, uh, Christians who followed Jewish religious laws and Christians who didn't. Now, sometimes we talk about Jews and Gentiles, but the reality is that it wasn't that clean. There were Christians who were Jews and were still following the Jewish law, and there were also Gentiles who, but when they became Christians, they were already following the Jewish law. They were what's called proselytes or God-fearers. In fact, the very first Gentile to become a Christian, Cornelius, was a God-fearer. He was probably already worshiping the God of Israel. Okay? So you had people who were following the law of Moses. Then you had people, this was mostly Gentiles, but there were also some Jews like Paul and, and uh, Priscilla and Aquila who were in Rome who did not follow the law of Moses. Okay? And the churches were mixes of these two groups. Now, if you're in Jerusalem, it's far more of the law keepers than the non-law keepers. If you're in Galatia, it's more of the non-law keepers than the law keepers. But in every church, they had this mix. And the founders of the churches, the first, gener the first people to join the churches, tended to be law keepers. Okay? Now, it's, uh, it can be hard for us to understand how, how difficult that would be until you actually think about the practicality of worshiping that way. Because remember, you cannot keep the law of Moses alone. We talked about this when we did the terms and conditions. You can't keep the law of Moses as an individual. This is why observant Jews to this day tend to live in communities. Because if you're going to eat kosher, if you're going to eat according to the law of Moses, you have to know how your animal was butchered. It has to be butchered the right way. You have to know how your grain was gathered that went into your bread. It's this whole system that involves other people, and you can't do it alone. So, you have, let's say, half of your church is following the law of Moses, and half of your church is not. What do you do when you have a potluck and somebody wants to bring pork or cheeseburgers? Seriously, though. What do you do? Because half of your church cannot sit down to a meal that involves pork and cheeseburgers. They cannot, right? What do you do when you schedule church events? Because the law of Moses has a lot to say about what days you worship on and what days you don't work on or don't travel a certain distance. What do you do when you're scheduling church events? Half your church has strong religious scruples about when they worship and when they don't and when they work and when they don't, and the other half don't have the scruples about that. Some have strong scruples about what they eat and some don't. What do you do? This is a major obstacle for churches to figure out how to live together. So every congregation had to decide whether they were going to follow the laws in the way they gathered. Are we going to, are we going to 
eat kosher when we have our potlucks, when we have our love feasts? Are we going to gather on certain days or not? Like These are all things they had to work out. They had to make a decision, and that decision would affect the congregation. Now, in Rome, the, the situation was unique because it was, the church in Rome was founded by Jewish Christians, but the Roman emperor had expelled them. He had exiled all Jews, which in Rome, if you were a Jew, if you followed the Jewish law, because you needed a legal exception for that. So anyone, whether you Jew or Gentile, Christian or not, who followed the laws of Moses got exiled from the city for like five to ten years. That means that the church that was left, all the leadership positions got filled by people who didn't keep the law. All the people worshiping were not keeping the law. So you can bet, first potluck after that, they had cheeseburgers, right? Then, after this exile is over, these people come back. They, aren't, they don't have any leadership position in the church. They're a, they're a, they are a leadership minority. They are a numerical minority. They also lost all their property, so they came back to Rome, but they don't get their businesses back. They have to start from scratch, so they're economic refugees. And, and they're putting this church back together. And this is the main thing that Paul is actually addressing all the way throughout Romans. We are often told that Romans is a theological textbook. It's not a textbook. It's all about how to put a church like this together. The first 11 chapters of theology, a lot of people say it's 11 chapters of theology and then it's just some, some ethical stuff to tag on as an appendix at the end, but it's really all this theology. The theology serves the point that he makes in the section we're going to be getting to where he's telling them how to live together because they're facing this issue. And the problem is that because the church was mainly people who didn't keep the law and they'd been set in their ways, five to ten years, they hadn't even had to worry about kosher, what they did was the, the non-keepers tended to ignore the concerns of the law keepers. Like, no, no, we, we, we don't need to, we're going to keep having cheeseburgers. People are used to cheeseburgers, so, you know, if you, you don't have to eat them, but you can, it's, it's not a big thing, we'll just keep doing it. Problem is, that hurt these, these people, the, the law keepers, and it excluded them, because now they can't come. You're basically saying, you're not, like, you have to change what you believe about this, or you can't be here, or we don't care that you can't be here because we've got cheeseburgers. Now, this isn't a one-sided issue, though, because churches are, the church disputes are never one-sided issues, because the reaction of the people who kept the law was to say, hey, everything we believe, we have scriptural support for. Here's the thus says the Lord's. Here's where it says not to do these things. You're displeasing God by not keeping the law. You are being disobedient. So the law keepers judged the non-keepers as disobedient Christians, which hurt and offended them. It doesn't require much imagination to see this happening, does it? Like, I'm not, I'm not stretching you by imagining a, a conflict happening this way. This is very human. It's very, like, we see this kind of thing happen all the time. This is what Paul is writing to. This dispute, this kind of issue of a church that has been divided along these lines and needs to be put back together, okay? And what does Paul say? What does he tell them? Well, he hits it hardest on the head in Romans 14 through 15, and here's verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Let me define a couple of things here. We're going to need to ultimately define three things in this verse. Number one, one whose faith is weak. What he means there is a person whose, whose conscience is sensitive, a person whose faith does not allow them to do something. He's not necessarily saying they don't believe in God. He's saying their belief in God, or they have a weak belief in God. He's saying that their, their faith is, is weak and it, can't, it keeps them from doing things. Okay? So when you, when you encounter that person, accept them. The word here in Greek really means take in. And one of the meanings is eating. They'll use this word to refer to eating food. It's also used when Peter pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him. 
If you remember when we talked about Peter's story, he, he t- pulls Jesus aside and gives him a talking to, which is bold. But the word is he takes him in. Uh, but it's also used for when Paul is shipwrecked and the locals take him in and take really good care of him. It's a hospitality term. So when he says take them in, and when he says accept them, or your translation may say welcome, what he's saying is accept each other, embrace them, welcome them into your home, have them over for dinner, make them part of your life without arguing. He says without arguing over matters of opinion or disputable matters, welcome them in without arguing. We are terrible at that, aren't we? We are absolutely, as Christians, uh, you know, we are, we are not actually good at this. Welcoming people in that we disagree with. But it's plain right here in Scripture, right? So how do we get around this? How, why are we so bad at this? I would argue it's because of the way we define disputable matters or matters of opinion. Because we make the list of things that are opinion so narrow that it gives us permission to divide over pretty much anything that's important to me. So what I want to do now is I want to look at how Paul is categorizing matters of opinion because it is broader than you think it is. One of the great historical tragedies is that Paul has been used to divide, Paul's writings have been used to divide people in so many ways. When the churches split, they tend to go to Paul, which is tragic because that's not what Paul is trying to do in his writings. So let's look at what Paul considers to be a matter of opinion. Next verse, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but not another whose faith is weak, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. A person who's eating only vegetables, the reason for that is because they want to eat kosher, but there's no kosher deli. Remember, the, the Jews have been cast out of the city. When they come back, there's no Jewish butcher, which means they can't trust any of the food in the city, so they eat vegetables. Daniel does the same thing in Babylon. They can't get the food butchered the right way, so they just don't eat meat because they can't keep the law with any of the meat that could be, they, they can eat. Okay? So he's talking about keeping kosher. Now, what we normally do when we talk about matters of opinion is we say, well, it's things that don't matter. We probably don't say it that way, but we treat it as things that don't matter. Like your favorite color, that's a matter of opinion. You know, like, like what color we're going to paint the sanctuary, that's a matter of opinion. But anything, any matter of doctrine that we know that we're certain of, you don't, you don't accept people over that. You've got to stand firm on that, and you've got to stick to it, and, and divide over it if necessary. Anything you know for a fact, right? Well, what does Paul know about kosher food? about kosher laws. He's going to tell us in verse 14, I am fully, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. That is Paul's position. He knows for a fact in Christ Jesus that kosher laws are unnecessary. And yet, he counts them as a matter of opinion. You say, okay, well, yeah, but that's because he doesn't have a, a, a scriptural command, right? If there was a thus says the Lord, then clearly he, would be, he wouldn't say this, right? Like anytime there's a command from the Bible, then we need to follow it, right? Which in application really just means that we pick our favorite thus says the Lord's and we pick some others that we ignore. Like nobody actually keeps all of them, but we pick our favorite and say, because we're picking the ones I think are the most important, I am keeping the commands of Jesus, Problem is that that doesn't work here either because there, Jesus does weigh in on this issue. In Mark 7, Jesus says, you, Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he, Jesus, declared all foods clean. Jesus took a position. It's in Scripture. 
These are, there was eyewitness testimony at the time Paul was writing saying that Jesus said this. And yet, Paul says, it's a matter of opinion. It's a disputable matter. Why? What is Paul's line? How is he defining what's a disputable matter and what's not? Where's the line between things we can disagree on and things we don't? Well, he gives it to us when you, when you pay attention to what he says in the very next verse of chapter 14. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Paul is making an assumption here about the people he's talking about. He is talking about the people that have been accepted by God. And he is essentially saying, if they have been accepted by God, then you must accept them without fighting. See, here's the funny thing that happens in churches, is we will say, here's the list of things you have to do to be a Christian, to be accepted by God. Same word, accepted, taken in, embraced, right? Here's what you have to do to be accepted by God. For some churches, it's longer. For some churches, it's shorter. It's often very, very short with just one or two items on it. But then we'll say, okay, but here's what you have to do to be accepted by this congregation. Like, here's what you have to do to be welcome at God's table. Here's what you have to do to be welcome at my table. And there's a lot more things on this list than there is on this one. We'll say, okay, now you can be saved, but you can't be a member here until you also do these things or agree to these things. And, and or, you, you know, I, we, I won't have you over for dinner unless we agree on all these other things, even though God doesn't need to agree with you on that to have you at his table. Do you see how weird that is when you actually think about it that way? What Paul is saying is, if they're accepted by God, whatever that, that level, whatever that requirement is to be accepted by God, if they've been accepted by God, then there's no good reason for you not to accept them. A person who's a much higher authority than you has already decided. They're in. Right? So if God accepts them, you should too. Even when they are wrong. Notice how I say that. I'm not saying even just when you disagree, because what we tend to do is we tend to say, well, things that, it's okay if we disagree on things that don't matter. And it, our, our, often our approach to unity is to then just take things we disagree on and make them less important. Like for my parents' generation, when they were my age, how you read Revelation mattered a lot more than it does today. People talked about it a lot more, fought about it a lot more, divided over it a lot more. Now, we just say, we don't, it's not important and so we can disagree on it because we just treat it as less important. What we're supposed to be able to do is say, this is important, this matters, that person's wrong, but they're still my brother or sister. Right? Even if they're wrong, not just even if we disagree on something that's not important, but even if we disagree on something that's important, but they're still a, a child of Jesus, a child of God, then they're my brother or sister. That's how genealogy works. But we get afraid when, you, when we say that. If you're like me, you get a little bit afraid there, right? It gets a little scary because we know that people can twist the Bible and twist the gospel in really destructive ways. And we don't want to let that run rampant, right? We care about truth. We care about handling God's word responsibly. We care about building his kingdom his way. And we know that if you warp that, if you twist it, you can cause a ton of damage. And believe me, I, I am a fallen human being. I... I, if you gave me a magic wand, I would definitely want to use it to just wish away whole traditions of how people have read the Bible that I think are really destructive to, to the church, to the world, 
right? I would want to just say those never happened. And, and God, and, and, and so we get tense. We say, no, I need to be able to shut that down. I need to be able to stop people from saying that wrong thing. And Paul addresses that when he's talking to the law keepers in the very next part of the passage in chapter 14. He says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or your sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. What he's saying is, we ultimately answer to Jesus, right? We will all answer to Jesus. And when I start trying to judge people who disagree with me and say, no, you're not good enough, you're not a Christian because you disagree on the wrong things, I'm going to cut you out, I'm going to punish you for what you believe. When we do those things, we're making ourselves the judge. God drew the boundaries here and we're redrawing them here and putting ourselves in charge. And what he's saying is, no, Jesus is the judge. So don't judge the way others follow Jesus. Let him do that. This doesn't mean don't believe there is a right way to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean don't tell people that there is a right way to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean don't stand up to error and destructive doctrines and things like that. Paul does that all the time. But what he's saying is don't put yourself in the final judgment seat and say, okay, they're not even my brother or sister because I've decided they're too wrong. That's not our position we are not that judge. God is the Father and we are the children. Now, what it sounds like and what you would probably expect if you know anything about Paul is that Paul is coming down on the side of the non-keepers and saying law, law keepers, just, you, can't, you can't expect that of them. Don't require that of them. You, know, you need to not judge them and, and just get over it, Right? But it's interesting that that's not how Paul comes down on the issue. Because now Paul is going to talk to the other side of the issue, and he's going to talk to people who ha whose conscience allows them to do more, the people who are strong. Okay? And here's what he says. Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. What he's saying is that because each one of us, it's each one of our responsibilities to follow Jesus, we answer to Jesus, that means we have to follow him the best we know how. And if I am convinced that Jesus has commanded me to keep kosher laws, and I don't, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, I'm disobeying Jesus. That means that if you, who know that I don't need to keep kosher laws, tempt me not to or force me not to, you're forcing me to decide to disobey Jesus. Right? Because as far as I can tell, Jesus has commanded me to do this. So if you force me to, diso to break that without convincing me that it, Jesus didn't require me to do it, I'm disobeying Jesus. Right? So he says, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. That is powerful. Do not destroy someone that Jesus came to die for by the way you behave around them and the way you flaunt your stronger conscience and your freedom. He says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, 
peace and joy in the Holy Spirit because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. What he's saying is Jesus didn't die so you could eat pork. Jesus didn't die just to free you from the law. He died and rose again to create a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy, which has involved setting aside the law that divides Jews and Gentiles. But if we live that out in a way that's destructive to other people, then we're going against the entire point of the kingdom, the entire priority of the kingdom, which is righteousness, peace, and joy. So he says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that would cause your brother or sister to fall. What he's saying, and this is very un-American of him to say, he's saying, don't ignore weaker consciences. Go out of your way to protect them. We're raised in a culture that teaches us to insist on everything we are legally allowed to do. And if someone's trying to, asking us to stop, we should rub it in our faces that they can't stop us. Right? This is my right. I'm going to do it. I don't care if you disapprove. I'm going to do it. Right? And, and make a point of rubbing it in their faces that they can't stop you. That's the culture that we live in. But that is not the gospel. That is not how the gospel teaches us to, to approach freedom. And I can give you two examples that you've already participated in this morning of how we come together as a congregation that illustrates this kind of unity, this kind of acceptance. The first one is in the way we take communion. To a legalist, we take communion wrong because we use grape juice. The Bible doesn't mention grape juice. The Bible only mentions wine. And it was alcoholic. It was definitely alcoholic. That's, that's because it killed the bacteria and stuff. That made it safe to drink when they couldn't drink the water. It was wine. Now, why do we drink grape juice? Well, there's a historical reason. From about 100 or so years ago, the temperance movement came out of the church, and it was responding to the fact that they were able to distill alcohol in higher and higher concentrations, and alcoholism was exploding across America. And so there was a movement when they were seeing lives get destroyed and families get destroyed. There was this movement to bring awareness, to, to bring uh, legal restrictions, and, and it ended up, part, prohibition ended up being part of that, whatever your opinion on that may be. But one of the things that came out of that, because this came out of the church, was churches saying, you know what, we know that having alcohol in the service can be tempting to alcoholics, to people who have that weakness. So we're going to switch to non-alcoholic grape juice for the sake of people who have that weakness so that they can worship with us. And we continue that to this day. That is a way of the strong who don't have that weakness bearing with those who have this weakness for alcoholism. Now I'm going to bring it up to right this very minute. Okay, This passage has guided me as a pastor in unprecedented times. Because a little over a year ago, last March, I suddenly had to make a spur-of-the-moment decision that no pastor I've ever met had a precedent for. We had to decide how we were going to respond to a global epidemic. And we've, and we've had to make unprecedented decisions in real time, very quickly, over and over again over the past 12 months. And I will tell you how I use this passage to guide that. We decided, before the state told us, that we were going to require masks in our services. The reason, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say that all churches should handle things the way we did. That would go against the whole point of the sermon. But I'm just showing you how we came to the decision we did. It was because, thinking of this passage, I, I read it in thinking about immune systems. How do we, with strong immune systems, bear with those who have weak immune systems? If we were to say masks are optional, 
and, and negate the fact that I wear a mask for the other person's sake, that would mean that there are people who couldn't worship with us. They would be excluded from the body. The same thing, that's why we didn't sing for that long. Believe me, it was hard for me to say, we're not going to sing. And it was hard to keep coming up with ways for us to continue worship, to worship in meaningful ways. That was hard. But we did it because the science indicated that, that um, singing would create a greater risk for really sensitive, for really vulnerable people. And we have a lot of really vulnerable people. And we didn't want to take that risk. We wanted them to be able to join. There were people who worshipped with us, who could worship with us only because we took those measures. Now, thankfully, the vaccine has allowed us to go back to singing because those people are now vaccinated and among the least vulnerable. But the point is, all I'm really pointing, telling you is that the reason we did this and the reason why you made that sacrifice, sacrifice that it is, it is a sacrifice to wear a mask all the time, right? Uh, to wear a mask in church and to sing through a mask. We do that for the sake of the weak for the sake of those who need that kind of protection. That's why we made that decision. And you can, you can disagree with it or whatever, right? We can disagree and still worship together, but I want you to understand where that comes from and how this logic applies to what the decisions we make every day. For some reason, in this day and age, we have to justify to people that unity is relevant. But Christian unity is absolutely relevant to the decisions we make every day. Paul is going to go on in chapter 15 to really put an exclamation point on this. And here's to, to draw it all together. He says, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength. An obligation and not to please ourselves. Each one of us must please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even the Messiah did not please himself. Therefore, accept one another just as the Messiah also accepted you to the glory of God. Notice that he brings it back to that word accept. And before he said, accept the people God accepts. And now he says, accept them the way Jesus accepted you. Because here's the thing. Jesus did not wait for me to get my doctrine right to accept me. When Jesus accepted me, I was very broken in a lot of different ways. It is amazing the number of things that Jesus put up with me when he saved me and continues to put up with me today, right? So how can I receive that acceptance in my broken state, and expect other people to get fixed before I'll accept them, to get their doctrine straight, to get their biblical exegesis straight, to get whatever these other qualifications are that I put on there. That's not how Jesus accepted me. So I, I ought not to make those conditions for my accepting of other people. It just doesn't work. So acceptance, what it means is bearing with each other out of love the way Jesus did for us. Bearing with them. Doing things we wouldn't need to if they weren't in the room. Sticking with them when it would be easier on us to exclude them. To part ways. We bear with each other the way Jesus did for us. Now as we close, what I want to do with this, is, uh, as we do each week, I want to take this and, uh, and just make three quick observations about what it means if acceptance is part of reconciliation, biblical reconciliation. What does that tell us about biblical reconciliation? The first thing it tells us is that reconciliation is not fair. Too often, we are unable to reconcile with people because we say, well, they have to meet me halfway. I will do half of the work, but they have to, do, they have to make an effort too. They have to go as far as I did. We'll meet in the middle, right? That's not how biblical reconciliation works. Reconciliation requires more of the strong. If you are able to do more, then God calls you to do more. 
And that, in fact, that's probably why he gave you that strength. To use it to go farther. To open up doors of reconciliation. This is what Paul is... Did you catch basically where Paul falls on whether they should eat kosher in their family meals, in their church meals or not? They should. He says, if it's a matter of destroying those weak members of your congregation, then eat kosher in your family meals. Eat your cheeseburger at home when you have dinner that night, but don't bring it to the potluck. That means that he called on the strong members of that congregation to sacrifice more than the weak. The next thing we have to remember about biblical reconciliation is that reconciliation should follow God's boundaries, not ours. We ought to, to reconcile with people on the terms that God reconciles with them. That means we ought to love the people who God loves. And who does God love? Everyone. There aren't exceptions for who we're supposed to love. And then when it, who are we supposed to treat as our brothers and sisters? Everyone that is a child of God. Right? If they are part of the family, then we treat them like family. Our, our brotherhood and sisterhood is defined by our common fatherhood. So our boundaries, who we are willing to, to reconcile with, who are we are willing to go the extra mile to reconcile with, that has to be drawn, defined by God's boundaries. Who is God willing to go the extra mile for? All of us. And the last thing, and this is, I think, where it really comes, where we really struggle. I think this is the, the, the part that's hardest for us. Reconciliation requires us to trust in God's plan and his judgment. Because when we start to draw boundaries that are more narrow than God did, that means that we don't think God drew them right. Right? We think, no, no, God, you got to make sure that people agree on all these other things too, because that's the only way to build a church, right? Is to require all of these things. You can't let those kinds of people in. It's all going to go wrong. And I honestly feel that. I feel that where I will look at whole parts of the church that do things differently than me that I don't understand or I think are destructive and say, how can they be in? But I have to follow God's lead and recognize that his plan is better than mine. And I also have to recognize that his judgment is better than mine and that he's the ultimate judge. And it does me no good to say they're out of the kingdom if God's going to say they're in. And in fact, the way I tell other people they're out of the kingdom may affect my verdict when it comes to the end. The way I follow Jesus. Right? So reconciliation, if we're going to reconcile the way God calls us to, we have to actually trust in his plan. That the people he saves are the people are he saves them on the right terms, and that his judgment will be sufficient. We have to let God rule his church. Amen. As we close, I wanna I wanna focus now on, on next steps as we do our invitation. I just want to tell you what, what your next steps could be. The first next step that you could take is if you're if you have not become a child of God. Today is the best day for you to become a part of this family. This family that stretches across the world, stretches across time. Today is the best day for you to give your life to Jesus. We love for you to come forward and make that commitment today if he's pulling on your heart. And if you're online, talk to a Christian that you know and trust. Talk to the church. Get in touch with us. We would love to make that connection with you and help you to become a child of God and our brother or sister. The next step, if you are a believer and you want to get more plugged in, is you could sign up for our Connect class. Because we as a church are seeking to be a body that lives this out. We want to be this body that is united by God, that is united by Christ and Christ alone, and that shows the world the love that God has for his people.
We would love for you to get more connected with us, and our Connect class is a great way to find out what that looks like, what membership looks like, what, how you can get plugged in and, become, and go further in discipleship. So please mark that on your card, and, and we will get in touch with you about the class. Another thing you can do is join a small group because as we, we're talking about reconciliation, being in relationships with people, this is not, sitting in the pews is not uh, where relationships end, right? This is the beginning and we want you to know each other better and be connected with each other more. Small groups are a great way to do that. And finally, if you're plugged in with all of those things, God calls us to give back. So a next step for you could be to join a service team and to actually uh, get plugged in, in in helping others, whether it's serving in a church, like in nursery, we talked about that. We also have opportunities for you to serve our community and to serve our world. So we would uh, love for you to consider one of those next steps as well. You can check, there's a service team box on your card as well. So any of those decisions you can check on your connection card. So I'll ask you to consider those as we stand and sing our final song.